Well, well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, on our Wednesday night table talk. For those of you that may not be familiar with me, I am Pastor Yvette Gallinar from Word of Faith Global Ministries. We are a, a non-denominational independent church in the city of Miami Springs, Florida. And uh, thank you for joining us. If you want more information on our church, you can go to wordoffaithglobal.org. But I am super excited that you're joining me tonight. And I am extra excited to have Dr. Laura Sanger with me this evening. So thank you, Dr. Laura, for joining me. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I'm sure uh, we've talked about this before. I'm sure it's not going to be just this one. We are going to definitely have more interviews uh, mm -hmm. as uh, the weeks and months go by, I'm sure. Amen. 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 So, um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, God is so uh, wonderful. He connected us through several podcasts that I've been listening to Dr. Laura in. And uh, the minute I heard about uh, the book that you wrote, uh, and just so I can explain a little bit about you, and maybe you can explain as well, but Dr. Laura is a clinical psychologist. She's an author, and she is also a small business owner. I uh, took the liberty of getting your book and one of the podcasts that I heard several months ago, and it took me about two months to read. And that is, I have it right here in front of me. I wanted to show, show the audience, but it's the roots of the Federal Reserve tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the US dollar. Ladies and gentlemen, mm -hmm. you have to get this book. And we're going to talk about this uh, in just a minute, but you have to uh, read it. It's powerful. It's enlightening, it's full of wisdom, and uh, I tell you, it's it's more of a workbook than anything else because I'm, I'm getting ready to go back and read it uh, some more. I've got little notes and highlights and whatnot that I can go back to. Uh, but Dr. Laura, would welcome, welcome to my table talk. <laughs> and uh, would you talk a little bit about yourself and- Yeah, and yeah. Go from there. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I am a psychologist by profession. So, you know, it might seem odd that a psychologist wrote a book about the Federal Reserve, but I'm one of those people I absolutely love to learn. And so, you know, I kind of have this naturally inquisitive mind. I'm constantly formulating questions in my head to research. Uh, and so I actually, um, you know, I've, I've worked in a number of different VA medical centers before, and I started doing uh, research in particular in 1989, and I've been doing some form of research ever since then. So I absolutely love like formulating questions and then going after it and looking at different ways to address those questions. And so I bring that skill set to what I wrote in the Roots of the Federal Reserve, and I have um, 553 references. So I just really pour into things because I want to pull out all the, the connections of how this Nephilim agenda you can trace all throughout humanity. So, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'll share is it really, for me, began in 2008 when our, you know, our economy crashed, we went through the Great Recession. And at that time, we were actually going through a family crisis of our own. So our youngest son at the time, um, he was 10 months old and he was diagnosed with kidney failure and failure to thrive. And so we nearly lost him on two different um, occasions. And, you know, he needed a, an emergency uh, hospitalization. He needed surgery. And then after 10 days of being in the hospital, he was 
discharged with a feeding tube. And that really began kind of this long, long process of recovery. And, you know, I did okay in the first little while, but once we got discharged from the hospital, it just seemed like there was one setback after another. And he was so, so ill um, that I didn't know if from day to day I would find him dead or alive in his crib. Um, and so that really messed with my head and it caused me to tank. I tanked for about a good year and a half where I went through what I call a dark night of the soul. And it was, um, you know, it was a challenge, but the Lord was so faithful, um, you know, to, to work on me and my foundation of who I am um, through the midst of that. And um, our, our son is doing well. He still has some kidney issues, but um, he's nearly 15 and uh competitive soccer player, great student. I mean, you wouldn't know that he has any kidney issues. He's literally a walking miracle actually. Um, but so when I came out of that, uh, time of, you know, just being in that dark night of the soul, I, when I came out, I was super curious, like what happened to our economy? Uh, and so I just began doing what I normally do. And that is diving into books and researching and, as I started to do that, I recognized that there is quite a bit of corruption in our monetary system. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of where it started. And, you know, the process of writing the book was really unique for me because, like I said, I never intended to write a book on the Federal Reserve, but how it started was the Holy Spirit in 2014 just kept nudging me, uh, you know, how the Holy Spirit will kind of gently just keep bringing things to your mind. Um and I just felt this nudge to write a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. And so that's what I did. Now, I know you and I offline have talked about spiritual mapping, but I wondered, would it be helpful for your audience if I maybe summarize that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I'm just writing that down, as a matter of fact. So you just took <laughs> the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so um, spiritual mapping really, you know, it's it's something that not a lot of people are familiar with. And so it's always a joy for me to share about it because I think it's a powerful, powerful tool for spiritual warfare. So essentially what spiritual mapping is, is it involves gathering research on, you know, the, the physical, the social and the spiritual pulse of like a society or a people group, an institution, a city, a nation, whatever it is, the focus is of that spiritual mapping project. And so it involves really digging through history to uncover those ancient roots of defilement. And there's three, there's three components to spiritual mapping. So there's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. So real briefly with the reconnaissance, what we do is we'll send teams of people out onto the land itself to discern what's happened there. And a biblical example of this is when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan or when Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho. So what we're doing is, you know, people that, um, you know, have gifts of discernment, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can discern. Um, and so, like I said, we'll go onto the land itself and we'll ask the Lord to show us, you know, what has happened here? You know, we have people on our team that are seers. So I'm a seer, for example, I can see into the spiritual realm and other dimensions. We have people who can hear, you know, even the cries that the sound that the land is making. And then we have people that, you know, you get on the land and they'll start feeling like pain in their shoulder or like a really intense headache. And from all the discernment 
reconnaissance trips we've done, they've come to realize, okay, when I feel this, that means there's witchcraft on the land, that sort of thing. So what we do is we take notes and um, then we compile that with a research component. So that is really looking through historical documents. You know, we'll even obtain demographic data. We'll interview local people to get their perspective of what's happened, what's going on on the land. And then um, we've also looked through archives of newspapers and, you know, the local newspapers looking through those old articles can be incredibly insightful. And so what we do is we take all that information and then we write up a spiritual mapping prayer brief. And what that has in it is, um, you know, it kind of spells out the issue, the historical, the spiritual, what we discerned, but then it has targeted prayer strategies because what we want to do is we want to inform intercession. So we want to equip intercessors to be able to strike at the root of the issues. Mm. Now, what we found, um, and those that have done spiritual mapping. So Alistair Petrie um, in particular is one of the experts, I would say in spiritual mapping, George Otis Jr. is the other. And Alistair Petrie has discovered that there's four types of iniquity that can establish a stronghold on the land. Um, so those are sexual perversion or fornication, idolatry, broken covenants, and then bloodshed. So if these have been committed on the land, then it can establish a stronghold. And I can talk a little bit more about strongholds in a moment. But so essentially what we're doing as a spiritual mapping team is we want to equip those intercessors to be able to, you know, break off curses that are on the land. You know, through our prayers, we want to uproot those wicked structures that have been established through, you know, iniquity. And then we want to decree the Lord's purposes and we want to release the full measure of blessing that the Lord has for that land and the people that are living there. And so ultimately, really, the goal of spiritual mapping is to kind of create a path for the gospel to go forth and people to come into relationship with Jesus, be set free, and actually see transformation in the communities. So that's spiritual mapping in a nutshell. So what I did then in 2014 is I wrote a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve and gathered, you know, some intercessors and we prayed through some of those, you know, targeted prayer strategies. And then, you know, I thought my assignment was done. I thought I did what the Lord wanted me to do. Time to move on to the next intercessory assignment. But I would say like over the over the next year and a half or so, the Lord just kept nudging me and bringing me back to the Federal Reserve. And I knew he wanted me to dig deeper, um, but I had no idea what he had in store. And so for the first year in 2016 is when I started really digging in and researching and writing. And I would say for the first year, I had no idea what I was writing. It was way too long for a mapping, you know, prayer brief. I was like, who, e who is going to read this? Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. What are you having me do? <laughs> and then in 2017, he finally clued me in that he was having me write this book. And so I spent four years researching and writing. And, you know, I would, I absolutely love treasure hunts. My husband and I were youth ministers for most of our marriage. And um, we, we've recently stepped out of it, but we just love like creating clues for kids to, you know, go find and put these treasures together, these clues. Well, the Holy Spirit had a ton of fun with me because that's what I love to do. And so, you know, the writing process, I wrote it in what I call real time, which means 
it was so unconventional. Like I didn't have an outline of what I need to research and go after. It was really day by day. I, I woke up and I was like, okay, Lord, what, what do you have for me? What do you want to uncover? And my constant prayer was Jeremiah 33, three, which says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And that definitely happened because I didn't know. So I'm writing like chapter five. It's one of my personal favorites because it's the one that's more personal where I'm connecting with the reader. Um, But literally, I remember writing that chapter, realizing I have no idea how this investigative journey is going to play out. And I didn't know if any of the dots would connect. I didn't know the twists and turns that the investigative journey would take. It really was just an act of obedience following the lead of the Holy spirit on whatever trail he took me down. So the, you know, the research I did for the book, as I mentioned, it spans from the dawn of humanity to our current day. And I identify this Nephilim agenda that has defiled our monetary system and really practically every institution in our land. And so, you know, I trace this agenda from Noah to our current day. And, you know, it was published in November of 2020. And I, I knew from that point forward, because I, for the four years, I was in a time of hiddenness. No one, hardly anyone knew what I was doing. I took, I told a few close friends and my husband, of course, but beyond that, it really was this time of hiddenness. And then when it got published, I knew the Lord was calling me to step out and use my voice in a way that I hadn't before. And, um, you know, he, he's really called me to walk in Ephesians 511, which says have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And so I know I'm, I'm called now to awaken people to the impact that this Nephilim agenda has had on us today, as well as equip the body of Christ to understand how we can rise up and engage in spiritual warfare through spiritual mapping and strategic intercession. And, you know, one of the things that I gain a lot of inspiration from is, as I mentioned, George Otis Jr., he's one of the foremost experts of spiritual mapping. He he writes in one of his books, he says, it has been said that history, although sometimes made up of the few acts of the great, is more often shaped by, by the many acts of the small. Nowhere is this truer than in the realm of spiritual intercession. And I think that's so true because we have so much power because the Holy Spirit resides within us to go forth and to release that intercession, release the land, release the people. And really, you know, in understanding how to step forward with um, strategic intercession, we have to understand how iniquity can lead to territorial strongholds. Yeah. And, And that's so powerful because as you're talking, I'm very visual I'm a very Mm -hmm. visual person and I'm already visualizing these, um, I guess, hierarchies, you know, and how these things, uh, these deities, these strongholds, uh, really, it, it all, it all reflects and it all trickles down to us, right? And we're affected, like you said, you know, when you're doing the spiritual mapping, that you go to places and you, you know, for those that are seers and those that can sense the spiritual uh, atmosphere and you can you can see such things or you can sense such things it affects us and sometimes those individuals that may not be aware of their surroundings or the area that they're in um you know you may ask 
well, why, why, why are we sick? Or why do we have these arguments? Or why, um, why do I feel this way? Or you know what I mean? And it, it affects us as humans. I think it affects the body of Christ too. And a lot of us don't really know. A lot of Christians exactly. don't really understand yes. what is happening because, and I always say this to our church, we, we have this view of the here and the now, the material, the, the, what we see, mm -hmm. but what we don't see affects what we see and it affects mm -hmm. us. And, and we have to be aware of that because if not, we're not equipped enough to go against those spiritual right. forces of darkness. Right. right. Um, I, I love how you explain the spiritual mapping. Um, I'm definitely going to look into the two um, that you mentioned, Alistair Petrie and George Otis Jr. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I love how you expressed the spiritual mapping, um, uh, the, the, the three, the reconnaissance, the research, which is historical, um, uh, the, histor the historical documents, and then also informed intercession. That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. um, how, how would you say, how does iniquity open the door to territorial strongholds? How you know, it really connects to what you were saying. And I love what you were sharing and what you're, you're speaking to, you know, your congregation, because it's so true. You know, we can be impacted by things that are happening in the spiritual realm, just simply because of the territory we live in and have no idea that's happening. So I want to kind of break this down for folks so that they can understand. And also how do we, how do we rise against this? You know, how do we break through it? So just by way of bringing a little bit more definition to what iniquity is, you know, it's this pattern of sin that comes out of having this depraved mind. So we know sin is missing the mark, but iniquity, you know, comes from a heart that's set on evil ambition. Now, you know, we can think of sin like a strand of yarn. Well, iniquity is strand upon strand upon strand woven together to create this really thick cord. And, you know, just some examples of iniquity, you know, addictions would be iniquitous behavior, uh, domestic violence, child abuse, adultery, lawlessness, uh, you know, even deceptive practices within business and relationships. If you're, if you operate in, you know, domination and also intimidation, manipulation, that's iniquitous behavior. And then certainly the ones that I mentioned too, you know, the sexual perversion, idolatry, broken covenants and, and bloodshed. So if any of those are happening on the land in a community, for, for example, what that does is that creates an open door for the enemy to gain a foothold in that, in that region or that community. And then if those iniquities are not dealt with through repentance, that foothold can then become a stronghold. And a way to think about a stronghold is it's like a net that entraps people. And even, you know, when we look at the, the word itself, stronghold in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word matsud, and it means net, capture, castle, defense, fortress, snare, strong place. And it comes from uh, the root word sued, which means to lie in wait, to, to chase and to take provision. And what's interesting about that root word is there's also a figurative meaning um, for someone who lies in wait to catch a human. 
which is human trafficking is one example. And so in other words, you know, this is someone who is, you know, has the intent to exploit other people for personal gain. Now, another way to think about um, a stronghold is, you know, it's like a fortified city. So if we think about um, Jericho, for example, Jericho had these impenetrable walls, which really controlled the traffic in and out of the city, right? right. Well, so if we think about um, that in a, in a spiritual realm way, you know, we know that authorities, powers, rulers, spiritual forces of darkness, they're looking for those open doors to establish strongholds in territories because they want to take territory from the kingdom of God and they want to take captive everyone living in that territory. So, you know, one of the things that's important to understand too is that with strongholds, they can actually be strengthened through, you know, personal, corporate, and generational iniquity. Now, one of the other things is, you know, there are strongholds over our minds. There's strongholds over cities, over states, regions, and nations. And just like you said, those territorial strongholds impact the people that live there, whether they know it or not. In fact, people can develop strongholds in their mind that are directly connected to the strongholds over a territory. And I'll give you a few biblical examples. So one is, you know, we see this in Israel's response to the report from the 10 spies. And I'll read Numbers 13, and this is um, a few verses in that chapter. It says, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So here you see from this report, it, it's filled with fear and intimidation. Well, that was the pervading attitude of the Canaanites. You see the Canaanites engaged in this iniquitous behavior that established a stronghold of fear and intimidation over their land. So when the spies come onto the land, they're actually coming under that stronghold, like that net that I talked about that hovers over that area. And the 10 spies, when they came under that stronghold, it actually impacted their own thinking. Right. And they aligned their mind with the stronghold of the territory. So that stronghold of the mind then developed one of fear and intimidation. And tragically, that really influenced their report to the Israelites. Yeah. But then we see Caleb and Joshua, my heroes. I love Caleb and Joshua. Yeah. They're giant slayers for sure. Yes. Yes. And, you know, they, they went onto the same land that had the same territorial stronghold, but they did not allow that to influence their mind. You know, they were able to perceive through, you know, what the Lord's will was. They could see things through the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's what allowed them to say, this is in Numbers 1330. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can surely do it. Yeah. So that's just an example of how, you know, a stronghold over a territory can infect a stronghold over people's minds. Now, another, um, I think a really good explanation uh, of what a stronghold is, there's an author named uh, Tom White, and he wrote a book called A Believer's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. And he defines stronghold as an entrenched pattern of thought, 
ideology and behaviors that's contrary to the will of God. So, you know, in thinking again about strongholds over our minds, you know, we should never underestimate the power of our thoughts. And, you know, we know from epigenetics that our thinking, our, um, you know, our behaviors and our lifestyle choices, that can actually affect our body, soul, and spirit and our future generations. And so, you know, our thinking can actually alter our genetic expressions, which then makes us susceptible to disease and illness. And that's why it's so important that we are, you know, interpreting and perceiving reality through the mind of Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we become susceptible to our our thinking being influenced by the culture, by religious traditions, and even, you know, our family, if, if there are you know, generational curses in our family line that we fall into like worry and fear and anxiety, depression, those types of things. Now I'm fascinated by epigenetics and, you know, it it really kind of plays into understanding strongholds in our thinking. And so, you know, I mentioned that epigenetics has this transgenerational component to it. Well, that really links and helps us understand um, what generational iniquity is. And there's, you know, there's fascinating research on this. Um, There was one study back in 2006 from a group of um, Swedish researchers. And they, what they found is that eating and lifestyle behaviors of prepubescent boys actually affects their progeny for two generations. So what they found is boys that overate and or smoked at around the age of 10, it's significantly, like their children and grandchildren had significantly shorter lifespans. And so what that shows is that our choices, now our choices are considered what's called epigenetic signals. And they can alter our genetic expression, which is called an epigenetic marker. And then that gets passed on to our children and grandchildren. So an easier way to think about it is our poor choices become the bad predispositions of our children and grandchildren. And that opens the door to potential strongholds through that generational iniquity if we're making those poor choices. Now, one other thing I'll share about like territorial strongholds is where I live, I live in the Salt Lake Valley, and we have a religious spirit that is operating over our territory. And that religious spirit, you know, it drives people into idolatry. And that establishes a stronghold of mind control because a religious spirit does not make room for the breaking of tradition uh, to make room for like new, fresh revelation. And so when you when you see a, a religious spirit and over a territory, you'll find that, you know, when people ask questions, that's, you know, that's not a good thing to do. You know, questions are discouraged and even critical thinking is dissuaded. And so what you have is you have the blind leading the blind uh, when when it's when you're operating under a, a stronghold of mind control. And it's crazy because. We can see this play out in all sorts of ways in our culture here. But one of the ways is amazingly, it's even in our traffic patterns. So, you know, we'll, I'll be driving on side streets, you know, there's two lanes going both directions and you come to a stoplight. And this has been like this. I've lived here 26 years. It's been like this 26 years. (laughs) 
you, you come to a stoplight and in one lane, there might be 10 or 15 cars backed up. And in the other lane, there's one or two. And there's no reason really like ahead as far as like you have to merge because there's construction. No, it's just a visible sign that people's minds are trapped by mind control and just following along with what everyone else does. They don't think outside of the box. And this is just an example of how a religious spirit can enclose our minds so that our minds become kind of like uh, Jericho, impenetrable with truth, with new revelation. And that actually empowers the Nephilim agenda um, to be carried out. So that's kind of how it all works together. Right, right. And and I would refer people to your website. We can do this a little later on too, but um, your website, No Longer Enslaved, uh, mm-hmm. is it .com or .com? Yes. .com. Mm-hmm. You wrote an article about recently about freedom from strongholds mm-hmm. and I actually brought it with me because, ah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was reading it and, uh, and most definitely it falls right into the topic that we've been discussing. And so I really encourage people to go into the, uh, the website and, and read it. Um, but speaking of Nephilim uh, mm-hmm. agenda, what, you know, you obviously talk about that at length in your book. I love how you coined the phrase Nephilim hosts. Mm-hmm. And can you expound on that just a little more? Because for our listening audience, I can tell you that I can completely relate to the topic of spiritual spiritual mapping strongholds because I'm a born and raised Miamian. So the uh, Miami, I mean, I think the whole world knows that Miami is a melting pot. Mm-hmm. Miami is filled with all different kinds of cultures, and obviously they bring in their beliefs, their religious background, and whatnot. So I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we talked uh, when we first met about that a little bit more. Uh, so the people that are watching from my church and from Miami will completely understand uh, that topic. But I loved how you uh, explained the Nephilim agenda and how, and this is what one topic that I've been um, for a while now I've introduced to our church Um because it really does go back to Genesis 6, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people might say, what do you mean, Nephilim? I've never heard of the phrase. Or maybe other people might say, oh, yeah, I read that in passing in Genesis, but I didn't really understand it. Can you explain a little bit more about the Nephilim agenda? And then mm-hmm. if if, uh, if you feel led to talk about the uh, Nephilim host. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, you know, kind of going back into... Um, the dawn of humanity, really. So the Nephilim agenda was unleashed during the days of Noah. And essentially it's the plan to defile the human genome through the propagation of a hybrid race. Now, the purpose of that is, you know, they want to overthrow God's kingdom. And really to understand the the Nephilim agenda even more, it takes going back a little bit further uh, to the origins of the seed war. And that's in Genesis three. So I'll read two verses, uh, verse 14 and 15. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we see here is as a result of the fall, 
Yahweh declared war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity, and the seed of Satan. And we see that one day Eve's seed would crush Satan. Well, that was a prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy then was to contaminate the seed of the woman by altering the genetic code of humans. Now, this is where the fallen sons of God become integral in Satan's strategy. And we read about that, as you mentioned, in Genesis 6, but also in the extra biblical text of the book of Enoch. Yes. And what we learn from those two records is that, you know, the the fallen sons of God, they chose to leave their heavenly abode and they invaded the earth realm by descending on Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon is, you know, on the border of Syria and Lebanon and also Israel. And from that point, what they did is they then lusted after the daughters of men. They took them as wives, mated with them and defiled the human genome by birthing the Nephilim, which are a hybrid race of giants. So the Nephilim are the seed of Satan. Uh, just so people understand that. Now, you know, as I was writing this book, one of the things that I felt that the Lord just kept impressing upon me was to identify a set of proposed criteria that would help advance our ability to discern the presence of Nephilim traits within an individual. And so what I did is in chapter 13 of my book, I identify four physical traits and 19 behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. And, you know, one of the things that the Lord showed me why this was so important is because we must not be deceived in thinking that the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity. Right. And so what I'm trying to raise people's awareness to is that they're actually Nephilim alive today, as well as Nephilim hosts. So, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I coined the term Nephilim host in my book, and that really represents a human who has partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out the Nephilim agenda. So these would be people that would meet the proposed criteria that I set out. And I think really, you know, these are the titans of global governance. So these are the global elites over, you know, banking, over industry, media, you know, academia, healthcare, you name it, all the, all the global elites over those sectors of um, our societies and nations. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important to understand is at the, you know, these Nephilim hosts, they are intent on destroying the followers of Jesus. At the same time, they're trying to enslave the masses through mind control, domination, and intimidation. So at the core of this Nephilim agenda really is the goal to strip us of our humanity because they hate the fact that we are created in the image of God. What they want to do is they want to defile our human genome because of that. Now, if they're successful and they can turn us into hybrids, that obviously would disrupt our ability to commune with creator God. And so, you know, one of the things that is important to understand is the Nephilim agenda and the globalist agenda really are serving the same end goal. And that is the total domination of humanity. When we think about it, it's really tyranny on the grandest scale. And, you know, if they're successful in being able to carry this out, you know, they have to use mind control tactics. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so important that we understand what these mind control tactics are so that we don't get hoodwinked by them. Absolutely. You spoke um, on about epigenetic, epigenetics. I do want to get back to um, mind control, but you spoke about epigenetics and um, 
I love how you explain it, not, not just in your book, you've explained it before in several podcasts I've heard you on. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people will ask how I know, okay, I understand the Nephilim were in, um, you know, roamed in Genesis six, you know, uh, um, flood time and all that. How, how is it that they be, how is it that they came after Genesis six? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like how you, um, if you don't mind going there for just a little bit, uh, you've spoken about Nimrod, you've spoken about epigenetics, that switch on mm-hmm. um, gene, if you will. And so can you explain a little bit about that to our listening audience so that they can understand? Because I know personally that I've had individuals say, well, wait a minute, how even though the flood took care of all the Nephilim, how did they come back? You know, and we right. read, we read giants were in the land and, you know, like we just talked about in, uh, in the spies were sent out. They saw how did the, how pastor, you know, so mm-hmm. can you explain mm-hmm. that just a little bit more so that we can go into that? Absolutely. Yeah. That's really the age old question. Yeah. Tons of people have that question and it's a, a valid, good question to be asking. And what I do in my book, I devote a whole chapter to this. Um, but in a nutshell, there's there's really two primary theories to explain how were there giants on the earth after the flood. And that's multiple incursion and single incursion theory. So multiple incursion would say that there were multiple times where the divine or spiritual beings mated with humans, like we see in Genesis 6. Um I don't think that, you know, we can substantiate an incursion of the same magnitude as what we see in Genesis 6, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other times where that happened. And, you know, just in understanding ancient history and some of the cultures, the Canaanite and the Mesopotamian cultures, they engaged in what was called sacred marriages, where there was a union between a goddess and a king or a god and a, like a cult priestess. And so um, that's an example of a multiple incursion, but where epigenetics comes in, and I think it gets really fascinating is the single incursion theory. And that is that there was only one time in human history, Genesis six, when uh, the divine mated with humans. Mm -hmm. Um, So then how do you explain giants after? And that's where the epigenetics comes into play. And you know, epi means on top of. So epigenetics is a set of instructions that sits on top of your genome. And again, like I said before, you know, it is impacted by our thoughts, our behaviors, and our lifestyle choices. So we have these epigenetic markers that act like a light switch that we can either turn on or off based on our behaviors, the words we speak. I mean, you you can see this play out in scripture and why words are so powerful we don't want to speak forth curses with our words because that can then affect our genetic expression. We can, we can welcome depression. We can welcome anxiety. We can welcome heart disease and cancer simply with our words. And that's, that's understanding blessing and cursing in scripture, but scientifically that's epigenetics as well. And so it's beautiful how it all weaves together. So essentially to answer the question about how are there giants on the earth after the flood, you know, it, it really ties into, um, you know, a, a particular scriptures. One is I think Genesis 10, eight, I don't have it in front of me, but you know, it talks about how Noah's um, Noah was pure in his genealogy. And that essentially means that, you know, 
he, his wife and his sons were all pure. They, they did not have the Nephilim gene that corrupted them. They were a hundred percent human, but there leaves room for the fact that um, Noah, the sons of Noah, their wives may have had Nephilim genes within them, just in a dormant state. So they would have that epigenetic marker switched off. Now, a curse released in their bloodline could then switch on that epigenetic marker. And so, you know, in looking at um, some of this generational iniquity in Ham, for example, and how he disrespectfully gazed at Noah's nakedness. And there's, you know, there's some potential that he did much more than that. But even that, that shows us that there's this pattern of sexual perversion in Ham. And that is iniquity. And that opens the door to these things. So it's likely he may have chosen or possible, I should say, he may have chosen a wife that had Nephilim genes just turned off, you know, they're dormant because of that epigenetic marker. So Noah's curse over Ham's bloodline could switch on that Nephilim gene. And that's what we see play out in the life of Nimrod. So Nimrod engaged in um, ritualistic sex acts that unzipped that Nephilim gene. And in scripture in in Genesis, it talks about how Nimrod became a Gabor or became a mighty man or a mighty one. And that became like began to be one. That phrase began in the Hebrew is halal. And it means to um, defile yourself with ritual or sexual acts. And so that shows us that's how he became a giant or became a Nephilim is those Nephilim genes that ran in his bloodline that were in that dormant stage got flipped on because of the curse and then because of his actions. And that is um, just one example of how there were giants on the earth after the flood. Right. And I remember you spoke uh, a little bit about uh, the book of Enoch. And um, mm-hmm. I, I feel that it's it's important to also look into some extra biblical uh, mm-hmm. books, not to have them trump over the Bible, right. the God, right. obviously. But would you agree that looking at the book of Enoch would give us even more uh, information because they do fall in line with what the word of God is saying? So, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And even, you know, some of the biblical authors referred to extra biblical uh, texts, you know, the book of Joshua is one example. And how I approach it is just, as you said, the Bible is, um, you know, is above those. Yes. Uh, but how I look at extra biblical text is um, really kind of as historical documents that yeah. provide more information. So just as I would you know, open up the book, um, the works of Josephus, for example, the, the famous Jewish historian, I read through that and it, oh my gosh, like a couple of months ago, I read about the fall of Jerusalem from his perspective. I mean, there is so much in there that we don't get from scripture, but when we look at that and we pair it with scripture, it just, it, it brings a depth of richness to what the Bible says. So that's what I love to do. I just love to dig, 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 and, and it makes scripture come alive even more so. So that's how I approach these extra biblical texts. Yeah. Including the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, There's also a ton of information there that, you know, and I know that again, the mindset of a lot of Christians are, you know, they shy away 
from you know reading those extra biblical books because they don't want them to you know trump over the bible right. or anything like that but even in even in the in the new testament the book of enoch is mentioned mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know that's that's a little food for thought for those um listeners that that are listening you talked a little bit about mind control now yes here here's a here's a topic that boy we could be here for a good hour or two just discussing that one topic and I know that you have um, spoken at length about that um, on other uh, programs and um I mean, you've even talked about frequencies and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature that, again, those are topics that I believe that the body of Christ need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, but how, how do we break free from stronghold, the stronghold of mind control? What do you, yeah. what do you have to say about that? Well, one of the things that I, I want to First of all, before I talk about some of these mind control tactics, I want to encourage us because there is always a way out of the dark caverns of mind control. And I absolutely love the way the creator designed us because he designed our brain for neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity essentially means that our brains are malleable and adaptable. Mm -hmm. And we read about this in Romans 12 too. And I want to read that passage. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, one of the things about me that I I think I alluded to is I love to dig into scripture. So one of the things I did in my book is I performed what I like to call an archaeological dig on language. And so I looked at, at the etymology of words, because when we look at these words in the original language, the meaning of them really pulls forth just this depth of understanding that we don't always get just by reading our English translations. And I've got this, you know, naturally inquisitive mind. So I'm like, okay, what does it really mean to renew your mind? And so, you know, if you think about the, the Greek word for renew is anakinosis. And not only does it mean renew, but it means renovation. It means a complete change for the better. Well, I love that already, but then I began digging more because the root word that it comes from is anakeno, and that means to cause, to grow up, to make new, to be changed into a new kind of life as opposed to the former corrupt state. Hallelujah. Wow. (laughs) How promising is that, right? And so, you know, we can ask the Lord to renew our minds day by day. And one of the things that I do um, is every day I, I pray and put on my spiritual armor. So I pray through Ephesians six. The other thing I've started is I literally say, Lord, I bind my mind to the mind of Christ because I want my thoughts to be aligned with his thoughts because his thoughts are so much higher than ours, right? It says that in Isaiah 55, his ways are so much better. And when I think about um, first Corinthians two 11, it says for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God, except the spirit of God. Well, later in that chapter, it talks about how, you know, we have the spirit of God in us. Therefore we have the mind of Christ. We have that ability to align ourselves with the mind of Christ. And that's what I want to do. And that's really an anchor of hope for me that I wanted to pass on to others because 
you know, I researched some pretty dark material, pretty, pretty disturbing things. And I don't get discouraged because I know that Jesus is our living hope. And I have that mind of Christ that I'm putting on all the time. So I wanted to like, yeah, give that encouragement before going into like the nitty gritty of mind control. So, you know, as I mentioned, Nephilim hosts, what they want to do is they, you know, at the, the core of that Nephilim agenda is the goal to strip us of our humanity. So in order for Nephilim hosts to hijack our bodies and turn us into hybrids, they'd have to hijack our mind first. Right. But the good news is, is they cannot, cannot hijack the mind of Christ. And that's why it's so important that we take every thought captive and we make sure it's aligning with Christ. Yes. Now, one of the ways that we break free, in addition to what I just shared, how we break free from a stronghold of mind control is we first make ourselves aware of what are the tactics that are being used to hoodwink us. So that's what I want to describe. Now, the first one is just classic. I mean, it's behavioral modification. Behavioral modification has been used to shape the psyche of the American people for well over a century. And what it involves is, um, you know, it, it consists of giving rewards for successive behaviors towards a predetermined goal. And then it gives punishments for failing, for failing to reach that desired outcome. Now I'll give you a real life example of this in 2021, you know, those that were willing to get the jab, they were rewarded, right? They were rewarded with, I mean, it was ridiculous, but started out free beer, you know, free donuts, free lottery tickets, you know, they were rewarded with travel privileges and in-person learning and going to concerts and sporting events, all that type of stuff. But those of us who did not get the jab, we weren't given the same rewards. Instead, you know, in some circumstances, we were treated like substandard citizens. Well, this is classic behavioral modification. What it is, is it's shaping the behavior of the masses through positive and negative reinforcement. And it's all by design. And I'll share with you Klaus Schwab, um, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum. He writes in The Great Reset, his book, he says, if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything, it is that acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case, and there's no reason it should be any different with COVID-19 pandemic. So right there, he's spelling out what they're trying to do. Now, another strategy of mind control is called the Hegelian dialectic. Now, George Hegel, he was a German philosopher from the early 19th century. And, uh, you know, he was considered the father of secular humanism, and he greatly influenced Karl Marx and Charles Darwin. So what Hegel did is he developed a method by which to arrive at a conclusion. So a dialectic really is a method of thinking. It's a basic brain function of differentiation. So what what Hegel believed is that the human mind can comprehend better when two opposites exist. So black or white, hot or cold, right or wrong, Democrat, Republican, progressive conservatism. And so this dialectic really becomes, you know, a strategy for controlling the masses. Now it's It's made up of um, essentially thesis, 
antithesis and synthesis. But a, an easier way, I think, to remember it is problem, reaction, and solution. And this really has been used to move the masses towards that you know, predetermined outcome that benefits the elite. Now, I think one of the things that's important for us to understand is that the agenda that drives the Hegelian dialectic is one that gives the centralization of power to one governing body, and that's the new world order. And so, you know, individual citizens are required to be obedient to the state. In fact, you know, when you think about under the system of enslavement, individuals only find freedom when they're obedient to what's being told by their governments. Well, that's not true freedom. Right. Now, if we consider all this in light of something Henry Kissinger said in 1992, he said, today's Americans would be outraged if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow, they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told there was some outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, that threatened our very existence. Now think about what I'm sharing in light of the global pandemic. Yeah. It is then that all peoples of the world will plead with world leaders to deliver them from this evil. The one thing every man fears is the unknown. When presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by their world's government. Mm -hmm. He essentially spelled out the Hegelian dialectics that have been rolled out since the outbreak of the virus. Because, you know, fear is one of the most powerful drivers of mind control. And, you know, the Nephilim hosts, they understand that. They had to create fear and panic in the masses so that they could roll out their surveillance system. When you think about it, under normal circumstances, there is no way Americans would agree to surveillance, but we came under the spell of the Hegelian dialectic. So I thought I'd make this even more real by spelling out um, over the last three years that each of the Hegelian dialectics that have been rolled out to kind of help people understand this, um, you know, a little bit more. So the Hegelian dialectic of 2020, the problem was the outbreak of the virus, which then became, you know, a pandemic. The reaction was one of fear and panic in the masses. And so much so that, you know, they turned to their governing bodies for a solution. Well, that falls right into the trap of what the globalists wanted because they already had the solution in mind. And that was the suspension of our liberties to keep everyone quote unquote safe. This is what you know Henry Kissinger just mapped out in 1992. Right. So now in 2021, the Hegelian dialectic, one of them, I mean, there's been many they're rolling out but I'm just giving you um, one example from each year. So the problem, in 2021 was that churches, businesses, and schools were still shut for the large portion of the, the country. Travel was extremely limited still. So that was the problem. The reaction it created in the public was this desperation to return to some sense of normalcy. So again, we turn to our governing bodies for solutions, play right into the trap because they already had the solution in mind, and that was the vaccine passport. You know, we were told over and over again, if everyone gets the jab, then we can reopen society with confidence. Yeah. Well, that was the Hegelian dialectic. Now, the one that's being played out this year 
the problem is that we've got inflation, we've got um, you know issues in the supply chain, and then we have at the same time real estate soaring in in prices. Mm -hmm. So what that's creating in in the public is a reaction of fear despair and hopelessness. Um, you know, my husband's a realtor and he's seen first time home buyers giving up really on their ability to buy a home because they've been outpriced. Mm -hmm. Well, again, this sets the stage for us to fall right into the trap of the Nephilim hosts. And that is the solution they have is called the great reset, where we've been told that we will own nothing and be happy. Mm -hmm. So this is just kind of a, an example of this psychological warfare that's playing out. And I refer to it as a war of frequencies. You know, it's really unconventional warfare. Now, um, one of the reasons why I want to raise people's awareness is because if we can recognize this for what it is, we can rise above it. Yes. So I want to describe a little bit more what I mean by a war of frequencies, um, so thanks to quantum physics, you know, we know that all matter has a frequency, but not only does matter have a frequency, our emotions carry a frequency. So for example, fear is one of the lower frequency emotions, whereas love is one of the higher frequency emotions. So then you, you think about since the outbreak of the virus, um, you know, so many people have come under the spell of these globalist mind control tactics because we've given into fear. Instilling fear in the hearts of the masses is a hallmark trait of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. You know, you think about the story of Goliath. Goliath used fear and intimidation to paralyze the armies of Israel. And I think, you know, one of the greatest tragedies of the past two and a half years is people literally became incapacitated by fear. They would not leave their homes. That's how fearful some people became. Well, and then, of course, you've got the propaganda machine of mainstream media, and they understand, you know, that this constant flow of fear-based stories will keep the masses stuck in their primitive brain where they can't access rational thought. So for those that don't know, the fear actually originates in the amygdala. So the amygdala is that part of our brain, you know, that it's considered the reptilian brain, the hindbrain, the... Um, the primitive brain. So when we are fearful, our ability to process nuanced information is impaired. And that means we're just more likely to blindly follow others rather than to use critical thinking skills. And that's really what we saw play out the last two and a half years. Now, again, if I break down um, and, and look at the, the root of the word pandemic, it really brings to light, uh, you know, some of this psychological warfare that we're under. So the root word for pandemic is pan. And pan was the name of a Greek god. And it was a hybrid. So it was half goat, half man, highly sexualized. And it was god of the woods and the fields. Now, it was said that pan would make mysterious sounds in the woods that would cause uh, contagious groundless fear in crowds and in people in lonely spots. Well, this is where the word panic originates is from what the Greek God Pan would do. He would create panic. It's also the root word for pandemonium. Now pandemonium means a place of uproar and disorder, wild lawless confusion. So you can begin to see how this all plays together. It's, it's really the psychological warfare where you know, you release a pandemic, 
that creates fear and panic. Now, you know, that happens naturally within the psyche of some individuals, but then when you add to it the accelerant of mainstream media hysteria, what we found is that there was contagious groundless fear in large swaths of the population. And so not only that, tragically, pandemonium broke out in the form of riots. And so this is the progression of the psychological warfare that's been waged against us by these Nephilim hosts. Release a pandemic that creates panic, which leads to pandemonium. And I think, you know, if we understand that this is a battle of emotional frequencies, then we can rise above that. Mm. You know, we don't want to live in fear because, you know, prolonged fear actually weakens our immune system. And what it does is it, it drags us down. If you can imagine, you know, as I mentioned, fear is one of those lower frequency emotions. So kind of how I picture it is it drags us into the gutter. And that's where all the the lies and deception is swirling is down in there. And the battle is really raging at at that level. And that's why, you know, our creator knows this about us. And that's why he mentioned in the old Testament alone, like 52 times fear, not exactly. (laughs) And, you know, I think about second Timothy one, seven, you know, it says for God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, we cannot have a sound mind if we live in fear. We have to rise above the frequency of fear. And, you know, we have to remember too that, like I said, the deception is at that lower frequency range that's connected to fear and panic. And, you know, we don't want to live down in that that frequency range because deception is the language of the Nephilim. You know, they're the seed of Satan. And so what Nephilim hosts have been trying to do is divide humanity. They're attacking us on those lower frequency emotions. Now I didn't talk much about shame. Shame is actually the lowest um, frequency for emotions. And we saw all the shaming that has come out with regard to whether or not you got the jab. So it's all part of a design that these Nephilim hosts are attacking humanity. Um, you know, but one of the things that I love is, you know, considering first John four eighteen, it makes so much more sense in light of this, of what I'm talking about. And that is, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So when you think about fear, again, it's that lower frequency emotion, whereas love is a higher frequency emotion. So love overcomes fear. And there is, I'll end with this because I I always love research. There's some fascinating research by um, HeartMath Institute, and they've discovered that the uh, magnetic uh, field generated by our heart is more than 100 times stronger than what's generated by our brain. So translated, that means when we exude heartfelt emotions towards one another, like love, compassion, generosity, gratitude, empathy, those types of things, we literally can shift the atmosphere wherever we go. We can drive fear out of a room just by exuding those heartfelt emotions. So that's how we overcome this stronghold of mind control. I love it. I love it. It makes so much more sense when you understand the root of it all, Mm -hmm. when you understand that there is an agenda, when you understand that all these forces of darkness are just trying to accomplish their own agenda. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really a difficult 
place to be in as a Christian sometimes, because if you don't know those things, you can very well get defeated. Just this week alone, Dr. Laura, I've heard of two women who have taken their own lives. Hmm. And, and if you look at the backdrop of it, uh, one of which I know, uh, um, not personally, but I know through someone personal that um, was a friend of hers. And she was dealing with depression, she was taking medication, anxiety. And, um, you know, it grieves my heart to hear that, Mm -hmm. because um, we are so bombarded. Yeah, by all of this in every direction. But beyond that, when we, when we understand what is really happening, and we, we see that really God has all the answers in his word and we can rise above it, man, that gives us so much hope Mm -hmm. that gives me an incredible amount of hope, but it's knowing and understanding what's really happening. Because if you, like what we talked about at the beginning, if you, if we are not aware Mm -hmm. of what is going on in the spiritual realm, if we are not aware of the assignment that you know, these entities have, then, then we're at a loss and we succumb to depression. We succumb to what the mass media is projecting. We succumb to whatever the government might say that we are in need of when we really ought to focus our attention on the Lord himself. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I so appreciate your, your, input and your insight and your wisdom on all this. And I do believe from the bottom of my heart that God is just using you so powerfully um, for, for this time, because the church needs to be very much aware. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I love how, you know, the word of God will give us all the answers that we need Mm -hmm. that frequency of love versus the frequency of fear. My goodness. Does not Jesus know all the answers? <laughs> he does. He does. He really, really does. I yeah. Mean, I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love about you is you always end your podcasts and your um, interviews with such hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you just share with us? Um, I mean, I know you touched on what your son went through as a mm-hmm. child and and how he's doing so well now. And how God has just given you that hope. And even in the midst of all of this darkness, like you said, that you are so much involved with the things that you have to research and they're so dark, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's always that light of hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Can you just share a little bit about hope, that hope? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because you know, we do go through these dark seasons, whether it's, you know, personally, we have difficult things, whether it's, you know, stuff that we deal with from our family of origin, you know, some of that generational iniquity, there could be generational curses running through our bloodline. And I talk about my own deliverance and other podcasts, but, you know, I, I struggled with fear. Um, there is a generational, uh, root of fear that runs in my family line. And, and I just, I love how the Holy spirit working in conjunction with Jesus, they always provide a way out for us. And I, I always go back to, you know, thinking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and, you know, they're set free from that slavery, but then they hit the Red Sea. Yeah. 
what are they going to do? And I think so many of us get to those moments where we feel like we're at this Red Sea moment where there's no way forward. How can we possibly deal with what's in front of us or with what's going on in the world? It might get very dark very soon, um, even darker. Yeah. But what we hold on to is the fact that Jesus is our way maker, that he always provides a way for us through. And, you know, that's why we cling to him. That's why we want our thoughts to be aligned with his thoughts. Because when we're looking at life circumstances or what's happening in our communities or on a national level or even globally, when we are looking through the eyes of Jesus, it completely changes our perspective, completely and, you know, we want to, we want him to be the lifter of our heads. And when that happens, we can get through absolutely anything because he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Yes. Amen. Amen. And, and we always talk about in our church, uh, the power of, of our um, words. We always talk about renewing your mind uh, according to the word of God. So all these topics we've discussed today ring really loud oh, and clear. <laughs> With me personally, I know my, my husband as well, we share that all the time from the pulpit and those that are members of our church as well. Mm. Dr. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. I want uh, our listeners to uh, find you somewhere. So can you share uh, a little bit about where they can find you, where they can sow seeds? We're very much about sowing seed into ministries that um, are of good soil. And I know for a fact that the ministry that you are involved in is good soil. Can you talk a little bit about that ministry and what you do there and, uh, and close with um, your book as well, where they can find your book? Yes, absolutely. So probably the best place um, to connect with me is through my website, which is called nolongerenslaved.com. And there I do monthly articles. You mentioned, you know, one of the articles I just sent out. Um, if you want to get those on a regular basis, you just subscribe and then you'll um, automatically receive those. I only send once a month, so I'm not going to inundate people's, um, you know, emails. And then from there, you know, you really can find the different podcasts that I've done. Um, and also I've started a, a new series on my YouTube and Rumble channel. So my Rumble and YouTube channel is called No Longer Enslaved. I've got, um, you know, several videos that I've done. I'm in the midst of a new series called Transformation Through Spiritual Mapping. And the series I did previous to that was called The Impact of the Nephilim Agenda Today. That was a 10-part series. And so if you're interested in understanding more about the Nephilim Agenda, you can start with my YouTube series. And then, of course, my book is The Deep Dive, as you mentioned, and that you can find on Amazon or it's also available through my website. So, right. And the book is called The Roots of the Federal Reserve. I'm going to pull it up again so I <laughs> can see it. And there you go. Tracing the Nephilim from the Noah from Noah to the U.S. dollar, a highly recommended book by all means. Well, Dr. Laura, thank you so very much for joining me. I know that we're going to meet again and uh, yes. we're going to talk about even more deep things, deep dives. And I'm looking forward to that. Thank you again for joining us tonight. You are welcome. It was wonderful to be with you. Same here. Same here. Well, God bless you and take care. I'm going to go ahead and log off with our uh, listening audience. Thanks for joining us. Please do share this message with your friends and your family and your podcast as well. And this podcast as well. God bless you and have a great evening. Take care.